Everybody is finding their seat. One announcement that I'm aware of, and that is that this coming Sunday will be the Lord's table. Now, we're not meeting as a church yet on Sunday morning, so we're not going to be passing out the elements here. And uh, so I need to remind everybody that when we, that first of all, you need to be prepared and have your, your uh, matzah, your unleavened bread, and your cup available. And you need it available to everybody when we start because since we don't pass out between the elements, there, we do one, then we do the other one because everybody here will have both of them right in front of them. So it's a little different procedure than when we have the deacons passing out the elements and we need to take out the time, everybody sitting there uh, ready to go. So that means those of you who are home, which is everybody except about eight or ten people who are here, need to be prepared so that uh, you don't get caught by surprise. Okay, we probably need to send out a reminder on that too because some people don't listen to announcements or they log in late. Or they don't read their email. Our streaming down and can't yeah, or all of the above. Yeah. Okay. Likely, likely excuse. Cast your burden on the Lord, and He shall sustain you. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we get started this evening, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer just to make sure that we are walking with the Lord, a term that describes the active fellowship of walking with the Lord in the process of our spiritual growth. When we sin, we're no longer walking by the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. So we need to confess that sin, and then uh, God instantly forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together to you this evening, trusting in you as we come together to meet, to study your word, watch over us. Father, we've had prayer requests last week and this week with different people in our extended congregation who have, uh, because of their stand for the truth and because of their stand for uh, biblical absolutes, and they have been run afoul of the uh, culture that is so angry right now, and so we continue to pray for them, and we know there will be others uh, that will uh, need protection, and we just pray that you would watch over them and uh, provide for them. Father, we pray for this nation as it continues to go through this meltdown, and there are these violent groups that are taking over. There's this hostile animosity towards uh, police, which is totally violation of your word, 
which tells us that we are to honor the king and be obedient to the king and that uh, as Christians we cannot, dare not, ought not participate, validate any of that kind of activity. And Father, we know that there are too many Christians today who just operate on emotion. They don't have enough of your word in their soul to know how to think objectively and accurately about what is going on. And Father, we pray that you would open our, all of our eyes to the truth, that we might, may not live on the basis of arrogance and self-absorption, but that we might live on the basis of your objective word and come to learn it, understand it, and apply it in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, tonight we're continuing our study on the topic of how should we then vote. The we there is not we as any special group other than believers in Christ. How should a believer in Christ make decisions in relation to those who govern us? And this is important for uh, several reasons, and we'll get to develop this a little later on. But we live in a world where we have people that we know. Some are saved, some are not saved. Some are friends, some are colleagues. Some are very close to us, some not, not so much. And there used to be a little uh, saying that went along with an ad campaign dealing with drunk driving that said, friends, don't let friends drive drunk. And some have joked and used that and applied it to different uh, political parties. But the reality is we believe that which is best for our neighbors, that which is best for our family members, that which is best for our country, are the principles on which the Constitution were founded. And those principles were developed over a period of centuries by those who were serious about applying the Word of God to every single area of life, including government and all of the different aspects and facets of government. And so it is part of loving your neighbor objectively. This isn't an emotional, sentimental thing to love your neighbor as yourself. It is an objective thing that you would not want people you care about to live under socialism. You would not want people that you care about to live under tyranny you would not want people you care about to be living in certain areas of Seattle or Detroit or Minneapolis right now because of what has happened in those governments. But the people who live in those places are actually reaping the whirlwind of their voting choices. Ideas have consequences. Votes have consequences. And it's amazing how people uh, often do not put together that what is happening in these places is a d direct result of what is taking place in the voting booth. And I don't mean that it's because Donald Trump got elected any more than any other president. It has to do with these local cultural issues that are destructive because they operate on arrogance and not on Submission to authority, that's the opposite. Humility is submission to authority. Jesus submitted himself to the Father to the point of death. And those who do not submit to authority, even when that authority is wrong. And let me remind you, Caiaphas the high priest, neither Caiaphas the high priest, nor Pontius Pilate were paragons of virtue. They were not righteous rulers. 
at all. And yet Jesus submitted himself to their authority. Now there's a lot to think about in terms of that. If, if Jesus was not willing to submit himself to an evil, unrighteous authority, we would not have salvation. And the reality of humility, genuine humility, submission to authority, submission to the word of God is, is critical and a lot of us tend to think that we're submissive to authority. But the reality is, once the authority you're under wants you to do something you don't like, I bet you're not that submissive. I bet your mental attitude kind of gets out of whack. I bet you get a little arrogant. And you, How can they do that? And you get mad. You get angry. That's not humility. That's convicting. Let's move on. So tonight we're going to develop the concept of ethics. Where do our standards come from? You've heard a lot of people in the last two weeks talk about various things that have happened from the death of George Floyd to the reactions, and they have used terms like right and wrong and unjust and just. Where, what are they appealing to? What is the standard? And that's the issue. Where do we get our standards? How do we know what those standards are? And sort of the theme of this study is Psalm 11.3, where David writes, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What are the foundations? The foundations have to do with the foundations of a society, a stable culture, a stable nation, where there can be safety, security, where there can be uh, prosperous economic growth, the development of a good economy, all of these things are necessary, but they don't just happen. All of those things are the result of something that is some things that are not often discussed and handled, and that comes, first of all, from a worldview. So there's basically two parts to this study. The first part, which we'll probably wrap up completely by next time, is the part of the worldview. The second part has to do with the divine institutions. And in both cases, we'll, we're seeing that a person does not have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, does not have to really be a student of the Bible, does not have to, uh, does not have to uh, be a pious or devout believer, but they need to hold to, first of all, a Judeo-Christian understanding of reality, which is called a worldview. And secondly, they need to understand that there are certain uh, social laws or absolutes that God has built into the framework of who we are as human beings. It's part of the imageness that we have, the image of God, and how that works itself out in social relationships. And God has established these social laws that are absolutes. And when they are violated, the consequences are just as destructive and just as devastating as when uh, we violate a physical law such as, uh, such as gravity. So we've been looking at the worldview, the foundation of all thought. Starts with who God is, ultimate reality known in philosophy as metaphysics or that which is beyond the physical. That in and of itself becomes a real problem in modern thought because in modern thought there's nothing beyond the physical. Everything is quantifiable, everything is measurable, everything is observable. 
But what metaphysics says is, no, 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 just the very idea there's something beyond the physical. But there are those in their uh, metaphysics believe that there's nothing out there but matter and energy, and that is somehow eternal. Just uh, the problem is, how do you get personhood, the development of the immaterial man, from uh, that which is material? Of course, they deny now that men have anything immaterial. We're all nothing more than the uh, than the chemical reactions in our in our bodies, and so everything is just part of the natural world, and that destroys volition and personal responsibility. And that gets us into the next section, which deals with the first divine institution of individual responsibility. Epistemology is the area of knowledge. How do we know things? How do we come to truly know? And we went through this last time, and I'll review the chart again briefly tonight. But the focal point of this in a study related to uh, leadership, related to government, related to make the making of laws and the application and the enforcement of laws, all of that comes to bear from knowledge. How do we know what right and wrong is? And that's the area we'll get to this evening, which is ethics. What is right? What is just? We have this term that has become popular in about the last 100 or 150 years called social justice. Social justice is the result of a Marxist worldview, a worldview that is built on materialism and not on the Word of God. And you don't have that kind of a concept in the Bible at all. We'll have to go through that when we get there. But we have biblical justice. And so we have to start with the Word of God. And so as we're developing our understanding of a Judeo-Christian worldview, we have to understand that we have a, a certain kind of God in Christianity, a God who reveals himself and who has created. Because he has created us in his image and likeness, we can understand him. We can, he can communicate to us. He designed us so that we can be communicated with, so that we can understand him, understand who he is. We don't understand him and know him exhaustively, but we can know him and understand him in a finite way. And we can understand right and wrong because God is a righteous and holy God. Uh, we are, as we are created in his image, we have a knowledge of right and wrong. Adam and Eve were created as perfect, but they had a test, and that test was focused on their volition to choose right or wrong, right being defined as obedience to God and evil being defined as disobedience to God. And out of all of these things that are below the water level here in this iceberg illustration come the discussions on national or individual decisions. And so whenever we talk about any of these things that come up related to economics, related to the printing of money, uh, fiat currency, uh, all the way to uh, laws related to uh, punishment of criminals, capital punishment, issues related to um, labor, issues related to... uh, issues related to uh, government, local government, administration, all of those things come out of the these three areas 
of ultimate, our understanding of ultimate reality, knowledge, and right or wrong. And one of the things that we see that comes out of a biblical worldview of right or wrong is that God punishes the wicked and he rewards the righteous. And that was very much a part of the thinking of the founding fathers uh, in their development of the legal systems in this country. And so there is punishment for those who are wicked, those who are evil, those who are disobedient to authority, and there are rewards for those who are, are obedient. So as we've broken this down in the last few lessons, I've taken just the first three here, focusing on God, that God is the creator of all things, and he created human beings in his image and likeness, which gives them value and purpose. And second, that the Bible is the basis of, tells us the basis of knowledge, which is our relationship with God. The Bible is God's revelation to man and is completely accurate in all that it reveals to man, teaching them how to live wisely in God's creation, which is marred by sin. Now, last time I talked a lot about the authority of the Bible, and we're going to come back because there was one area of our discussion that I didn't get covered last night, I mean last week. And then the third point here is that God created the human race in his image, both male and female, and that is very important, that every single human being is created in the image and likeness of God. There is no human being whose life is more valuable or less valuable in the sight of God. Everyone is equal because everyone is an image bearer. So tonight we're going to go to what happened to that perfect environment, and that is sin in the Bible, which is a word that is misunderstood by so much of our culture because they want to restrict its meaning to certain really vile or criminal activities. But sin just means basically to miss the mark, to make a mistake, to not do it right. That's what sin means. That's what both the uh, uh, Greek word and the Hebrew words mean is just missing the mark. You miss the target. Uh, And because there is sin, it's corrupted the human race. And so human beings are sinners, and therefore they are flawed, and they have failings, and they have evil desires. And so you have two views in life. One is, is man basically good or is man basically evil? Now, if you believe man basically evil, that doesn't mean you don't believe that man can't do good things. It just means that that his inclinations are towards selfishness and towards arrogance. And if that is not restrained by uh, ethics, that's not restrained by morals, then that will go out of control and that will end up in, as far as national politics is concerned, in what we see on the news. You see anarchy, you see destruction, you see looting, you see the destruction of private property. And so many people who have, uh, you know, they're, they're not a part of any any of these uh, racial issues that have been at the sort of the trigger for all of this even though I recognize that for a lot of those who are just concerned about the issues related to race relations and the death of George Floyd, which is just a trigger as a result of several things, that was taken over pretty quickly by people who had uh, evil intent, and they wanted to use it to sow seeds of discord and chaos and disruption, 
and that's because of sin. And so what is to restrain sin in this world is national government. National government is to restrain evil within the nation and to protect the nation from evil from outside in terms of those that would take advantage of a nation, destroy a nation. And so God has given these, under the fifth point, God has given principles and laws to control the sin nature and, if necessary, to punish those who do not control their own sin nature. So these principles and laws are for the right conduct of the human race in a corrupt universe. None of us are perfect. None of us ever will be perfect. But you see, you you hear things from some of the political leaders today, and you'll hear this from the left and not from the right. Uh, For example, the wife, I do not remember her name, the wife of de Blasio, who's the mayor of New York. Anybody recall what she said yesterday? Oh, we don't need to have a police force in New York. I can't wait till we never need to have police in New York. That will be nirvana. Notice she said nirvana, a Buddhist concept, and she didn't say heaven, a Christian concept. That's a real tell right there. Uh, She believes that that can be achieved, which means she doesn't believe in the in the corruption of mankind. She believes man is basically good and not basically evil. And so because man is basically good, man is perfectible. Man can be improved upon. And if man is perfectible, then society is perfectible. And therein lies the the division between left and right. Uh, Two books that that I would recommend. Uh, One is by an American-Israeli Yuval Levin, and I forget the exact title, but it deals with the beginnings of the left and right division, comparing and contrasting Thomas Paine with Edmund Burke. And that is a recent publication. And in fact, he makes the same observation in his introduction that Thomas Sowell made in his introduction to conflict division. And that is that you will have the same people line up on the same side of just about any issue, even though the issues don't seem to relate. And what makes the difference of where, which team you get on is what you think about man. If you think man is basically good, then no matter how you, what, what issues you think about, whether it's government, capital punishment, whether it's unions, whether it has to do with education, whatever it may be, you're going to always end up with answers and solutions that are on the left. And if you believe man is basically bad, basically corrupt, basically a sinner, then you will answer, most everybody will answer, who believes that will answer the same way, and you end up on the right. And both he and Thomas Sowell take this back, this beginning of the modern left and right distinction to these debates that occurred uh, between Edmund Burke and I forget who Godwin, I think, was the name of the person that Sowell used as the uh, point of contrast with Sowell back in Conflict Divisions. And then uh, uh, Yuval Levin uses, uh, uses uh, Thomas Paine. But this is the bottom line. What you believe makes a difference. Ideas have consequences. Actions have consequences. And so we're thinking at the level of ideas, not emotions. This all demands uh, thinking. 
So the sixth point is that God continues to oversee and direct his creation toward his perfect end. And his perfect end includes judgment. There will be judgment for Christians, believers in Christ. There will be rewards, and some will not have rewards because of the way they uh, disobeyed the Lord in this life. And then for those who are not believers, there will be eternal punishment. And this played a major role in the thinking of the founding fathers, that it needs, we need to have a moral people who understand that their actions in this world will impact their destiny or their rewards in the next life. And so if you don't have a people who believe that, if you have a people who believe there's no accountability, there's no God, then they will not be able to self-control and obey the laws, and the result will be uh, moral relativism. It will lead to anarchy and the destruction of, of a nation. And the only way to restore order is through tyranny. And we have a classic and beautiful example of what happens in the book of Judges. And it just, the whole Israelite culture just falls apart because they reject the word of God. They reject the mandates of God. They reject God as the king. They reject his law. Everyone is doing what's right in their own eyes. And as a result, they just hit this bottom in the period of the judges. And so the people have rejected God, so they reject Samuel, who's the last judge. And when they reject Samuel, Samuel gets all mad at him because he takes it personally. And God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Now, you need to go tell them what the consequences are. And he outlines those consequences in in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and basically tells them that you're going to lose your freedoms, you're going to lose your money, you're going to be under the autocracy of a monarchy, and you will be overtaxed, and you will have your children taken off to war where they'll be killed, all because you couldn't obey my law. And that's the consequence. We're sitting here now on the edge of anarchy in this country, And the only thing that can prevent it is those who still have absolutes in their soul. But their number is diminishing day after day, week after week. And I'm concerned that we don't even have um, the leaders in the nation who have the uh, courage, the moral courage to step up and do what is necessary in order to stop these, these things. And it's interesting to notice the kind of government that exist in each of these locations where this is taking place, and that's not a coincidence. People on the left will claim it is a coincidence, but it's not. There's a reason. Ideas have consequences, and these are the consequences. Well, back to what we're studying, the image of God, personal self-conscious, exercises will and determination. He's intellectual. He's omniscient. He knows everything, so when that is transferred over to man and you have a finite representation of God, then human beings are personal. They have self-consciousness. They exercise will and determination. They have the ability to know, to think, and to understand and to develop their knowledge. But there's a moral element also. God is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. And so that is reflected in his creation. Adam and Eve were both created in perfect righteousness and perfect justice. 
they did not they had not sinned yet they had not passed the test so it was untested righteousness and justice but they were in god's image so they were in perfect righteousness and perfect justice so this is at the foundation of our thinking about what a human being is genesis 1:26 to 28 that we are in the image of god but this is a point i've expanded this a little bit because we're getting into the ethics area If, as the Bible claims, we are the direct, intentional creation of God, then every human being has dignity, every human life has value, every human is deserving of respect, and each is responsible and accountable for the moral decisions that they make. Now, that's what an antinomian culture rejects. That's what a morally relative culture rejects. Rejects And remember, I started using a phrase a few, couple of months ago about the tyranny of relativism. And those people that are uh, have part of Seattle locked down, those who want to defund police departments in Los Angeles, Minneapolis, and other parts of the country, and thankfully we have organizations like the NAACP who will not go along with that because they understand the importance of law and order at some level. We have some people who are standing against it, but this is tyranny. There is tyranny in a section of of Seattle. There's tyranny in Minneapolis that, that Keith Ellison's son, who is on the city council, wants to bring in Antifa as a partner in governing the city. That is tyranny. Moral relativism is its own form of tyranny, and there is no freedom. There is no liberty once that happens. So we looked, we went from metaphysics, talking about God, to the point of knowledge that rationalism, empiricism, all have their place, but ultimately you have to use God's revelation in order to understand what God has created and put all of that together. So this is the important thing. We have to start with the Word of God, and we have to stick to the Word of God. It is, as I pointed out last time, it is in God's light that we see light, but man in his rejection of God is saying no to God's verbal and nonverbal revelation. And as a result of that, he is in in darkness. Now, sin comes because of the failure uh, in the Garden of Eden and failure to obey God. Now, that brings us to an area I talked about last time. I just want to touch on this briefly. I'm not going to summarize all the points, but I want you to pay attention to these first two points dealing with the authority of the Bible. This is the Christian position on the authority of the Bible, the inerrancy, inspiration of the Bible. But all you really needed to talk about back in the 16th, 17th, 18th century in the Protestant world was that the Bible had authority and it was infallible. The passages that are used are 2 Timothy 3, 16, and 17, that the Bible claims for itself to be the very words of God, and because they're the very words of God, the thoughts of God, they are infallible, they are uh, without error, and also that God gave the Scriptures by means of the Holy Spirit working through the writers of Scripture, 2 Peter 1, 20, and 21. Just wanted you to be reminded of those key passages as we go forward. Second, the language of the Bible was language that was often used by people, the Christians, 
in the 1600s and 1700s. They believed God spoke in the Bible. He didn't speak in parts of the Bible. He didn't speak through the Bible. The the words of the Bible were the words of God, and they would often quote these phrases, Thus saith the Lord, and God said, and God spoke. And these phrases and terms are used probably in one form or another more than a thousand times in the Old Testament. So I then ask the question, well, what... Uh, or I'm asking tonight, where did they get their views of Scripture? Where did they learn their views of the Bible? If you were living in Boston or you were living in Worcester in 1680, where did you get your views of the Bible? You got them at church, and you got them from your pastor, and pretty much everybody had in Boston, or in Massachusetts rather, were Congregationalists, or they were Presbyterians. They all were influenced by a Puritan theology. And if you didn't agree with them and you were a Baptist, then you left and you went down to Rhode Island. But the theology of Baptists didn't change just because you were Baptist other than in two areas. That's the separation of church and state and baptism for a believer-only at the time that he trusts Christ as Savior. So where did these people get their views of Scripture? Well, they had to memorize, as they were growing up, the creeds, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I have, if I can find it, I, it was too much to put in here, but I wanted to, This I've got to stop this just a minute. And then we're going to switch over to, here we go. This is Westminster Confession of Faith in Lagos. It's quite long, and I didn't want to read the first lengthy definition on Holy Scripture for you, but this is what people would memorize. You had a shorter catechism that children would have to memorize as they grew up, and they would learn uh, the doctrine, the theology, they'd learn the Trinity, they'd learn about salvation, they'd learn about the Christian life, government, all these various things. And it starts with Scripture. That's the starting point is the, the Word of God. And so in here, uh, the, the, first, the first paragraph basically explains uh, the general revelation. And then it says there's, there's special revelation in the 66 books of the Bible as we have them today, the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 books of the New Testament. There's a rejection of the Apocrypha in the third paragraph. And know what they say after they list the 66 books of the Bible. They say, all which are given by inspiration of God to be the rule of faith and life. And then they list a number of passages, Luke 16, 29 and 31, Ephesians 2, 20, Revelation 22, 18 and 19, and 2 Timothy three sixteen, what we just looked at. Then you go down to the fourth paragraph, and they say, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church. It's not from men, it's not from a religious organization, but wholly upon God who is truth itself, the author thereof. God is the author of Scripture, not man. 
and therefore it is to be received because it is the Word of God. They're not using the phrase Word of God in a technical sense because it's the Bible. They're saying because it is the message from God. It is the uh, His very Word. And they have passages like 2 Timothy 1.19, 21, 2 Timothy 3.16, 1 John 5.9, 1 Thessalonians uh, 2.13. And then goes on to talk about uh, a little bit more about the scripture in the next next few things. So this helps us to see the impact of the Westminster Confession of Faith on on people. They had to memorize it. They had to learn it. And this was known by everyone. Second, I have an example here from William Ames. I mentioned him last time. His dates are 1576 to 1633. He's an English Protestant theologian who spent most of his life in the Netherlands. Pop quiz. What other Christians spent a lot of time in the Netherlands? Their pastor was John Robinson. They got on a boat. Yes, the pilgrims. They got on a boat called, they started with the Mayflower and the Speedwell, but it had problems, so they just came on the, on the Mayflower. So there were a lot of Protestants that went over to, because of the persecution that occurred under uh, Bloody Mary, Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Henry VIII, and some of the persecutions that occurred even under, under Henry, they left, and they went over to Europe where they had a measure of religious freedom. And so William Ames was a theologian, and he wrote a book called The Marrow of Theology, which was a standard. It was, it along with Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, were, were like having Chafer's Systematic Theology and Ryrie's Basic Theology, and that's what you what you learned from, that that was it. Uh, <clears throat> In the Marrow Theology regarding Scripture and the authority of Scripture, Ames said, For they only, that is the writers of Scripture, could commit the rule of faith and matter manners to writing. Only the writers, authors of Scripture, only the prophets and the apostles and the apostles could commit the the faith, the, the revelation to writing who by reason of the immediate and infallible direction, notice that, immediate and infallible direction which they had from God, were in that business free from all error. That's where they got their doctrine of Scripture. He also said, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's a direct quote from Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. In the fourth, fourth paragraph of his section on Scripture, he said they wrote also by the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit so that the men themselves were, as it were, instruments of the Spirit in the place before, and he cites Jeremiah 1, 9 and Acts 28, uh, 25. So you have Westminster Confession of Faith. They were all very Reformed Calvinists. You have William Ames and, of course, uh, the, the the great granddaddy of them all, John Calvin, who in his Institutes, Volume 1, he says, The Scriptures alone exist as the means by which God has been pleased to consign his truth to perpetual remembrance. 
The full authority which they obtain with the faithful proceeds from no other consideration than that they, that is the Scripture, are pers- or that they are persuaded that they proceeded from heaven. The Scriptures proceeded from heaven as if God had been heard giving utterance to them. So it's the very words of God. And then you have, uh, in America, you also had a lot of Lutherans. And Luther's theology was very close to Calvin's theology in most areas. And I just have one quote from Luther. He wrote, The scriptures, although they too are written by men, are neither of men nor from men, but from God. Now, since scriptures and the doctrines of men are contrary to one to the other, the one must lie and the other be true. That's how they thought. There's right and there's wrong. There's biblical truth and everything else is a lie. This was the thinking of 99.9% of the colonists and the people who lived in America up until the early 1800s. Now, last time I talked about the views of the founding fathers, and just a little bit, I want to go back over a little bit on the influence of the Bible on the founding fathers. And so uh, I want to correct something from last time, and I didn't get out of the house with it, but I have the book that Donald Lutz used. I was taking some information from quotes from an article he wrote, and every scholar, it seems, quotes this article that he wrote uh, in, in a journal that was published in 84. But his book came out, and some little school over here to the east named LSU published it, and in 1988, and that's what I take my information from. But sometimes I have not been able to, before I got a hold of that book, uh, I, I've never been able to get a hold of the articles. But this was a 10-year project that started, you know, he first publishes in 84, so he started this in the early 70s, analyzing over 15,000 political documents from the period, from the what is called the, quote, revolutionary period, unquote, the founding of the nation, 1760 to 1805, and they evaluated 3,154 citations. Now, what that means is that, that you had to cite chapter and verse of the Bible, or you had to specifically cite Locke or Montesquieu or Rousseau or Diderot or one of the other Enlightenment thinkers for it to get evaluated. So there were a lot of... Last time I gave you the quote from Benjamin Franklin that Americans were so familiar with the Scripture they didn't need to have chapter and verse. And so there are a lot of things in a lot of Scripture quotations that aren't cited chapter and verse, and so they're not taken into account. So that really limited his study away from sermons and away from uh, election sermons and certain things of that nature. So he's really they're really looking at the diaries, they're looking at the speeches. They're looking at uh, other things that they said, the things they wrote in letters of that nature. And so that the most often quoted source for political ideas was the Bible. And when you look at all of his data, which he has in, published in his book, and he breaks it down dec- by decade as to who's quoted the most. And at the beginning... John Locke is quoted the most in the 1760s and 1770s. Now, why is that? It's very logical because they're dealing with 
how do we, what is the authoritative relationship between the king of England and the colonies? Now, Locke's British, and he deals with those issues a lot in his writings. After the 1760s, he's not quoted much at all. And then the primary source is going to be Montesquieu. Montesquieu deals more with how you structure a new government. So that's interesting. But both Locke and Montesquieu had strong biblical backgrounds, and they cite a lot of scripture in their writings. So it comes out that, that even when you take all of the quotations from the, those who are, have more than five or six uh, entries uh, up to uh, Montesquieu and Locke, then you have, you, you have uh, about 21 or 22 percent of those qu- quotations, those citations, are, are from Enlightenment thinkers. So that's, <coughs> that's two-thirds of the number of specific biblical quotations. And the others are just one, you know, one person here, one person there, and they make up a, a huge number, but a lot of what they say comes out of the Bible as well. So 60% of all the references from these other minor writers uh, have their original source goes back to the Bible. The Bible shaped their thinking. The Bible, as I said last time, the Bible gave them the framework. But when it came to how are we going to set this up practically in terms of a government for our town or our state or our colony, then they... uh, then, then they needed to go to these contemporary thinkers who were working through this sense of, of application. And I quoted uh, from Mark David Hall's book, the Holy Scriptures were the most important source of authority for America's founders. So that brings us to where we are tonight with our study of ethics. What exactly do we mean when we talk about ethics? Ethics is the technical term for that branch of philosophy which studies morality, studies right and wrong. Where do we get our ideas of right or wrong? One of the things that came across my purview today was an uh, uh, an email uh, linked to a new fireside chat put out by Dennis Prager. If you don't know who Dennis Prager is, he was reared as an Orthodox Jew. He has a radio program as well as several other things that he's engaged in. He is a conservative social and political commentator. Now, Dennis Prager is very open to evangelicals. He, I've heard him say a lot of very good things and positive things, and he recognizes that as goes the Jew and the Christian, so goes the world. Uh, if we're under attack, then we're both going to go down together. And we have to hang together. And so he's, uh, he's very interesting. He's very well educated. He, he's like uh, Michael Medved. He could probably give you the gospel better than most Christians you know. Uh, even though he is not a, a believer. But he is coming from a Judeo-Christian worldview. And so he started off today, he's been putting out these fireside chats, and today it was fireside chat episode 138. Now, I did not have time to listen to that today. I've listened to a number of others. He has little five-minute things that are quite good, and he has some longer fireside chats. Uh, 
and um, it caught my attention. I, I clicked it for a minute just to hear what it was about, and I just caught this statement in his opening introduction today. He said, what is going on right now is unprecedented since the Civil War in America in the 1860s, an unprecedented crisis which he said, I believe, threatens the United States value system. So we're talking about ethics. That caught my attention. What is going on today, what you're watching on the news, threatens the ethics, the value system on which everything in this nation, from business to laws, treaties, all of these things are all built on a specific value system, a value system of honesty. That if you take away honesty, then you can't, you can't be certain of any of these contracts or any of these treaties or any trade relations or anything like that. There has to be honesty and there has to be integrity. And so as he sees this, he sees that this uh, threatens the United States value system, and he says that's how serious I think, um, I think what is going on. So this is why ethics are important. Ethics are built on what? Our understanding of reality, that informs our understanding of knowledge, and then ethics, and then ethics is how we structure our understanding of right and wrong, justice and injustice, and from that we then get above the waterline, if you remember the illustration, to talk about specific issues that affect what so many people do when they, when they vote. So we have to understand that we start with God. In Isaiah 5.16, we understand this about God's eternal righteous ethic. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Now this is a very important statement because this tells us that God is holy. Now there have been a lot of different different uh, definitions of holiness that I've heard over the years. Most people when they think of holiness think of moral purity. The reason they think of moral purity is because of Isaiah chapter 6. But the core meaning of the word kadash or kadosh is the noun for holy, holiness doesn't have to do with moral purity. It does in some sense when it's applied to God in relation to his righteousness and justice. That comes late. One of the forms of the word kadash has to do with the male and female prostitutes in the, in the fertility religions of the ancient world. Now, how in the world can a male or female religious prostitute be morally pure? They can't. So what are they? They are separated unto the service of God. That's the basic idea of holiness. You can have a the vessels in the temple are holy. They're set apart to the service of God. They are not to be used for common things. They are set apart for the distinct purpose of serving God. So holiness has to do with something that is unique, distinct, and set apart. That's what God is in terms of every attribute, not just righteousness and justice. He's unique in his sovereignty. He's unique in his love. He's unique in his knowledge and his presence. He's unique in his power. He's unique in his, 
his immutability and his truth. He is distinct and one of a kind. And here it is applied because the word hallowed relates to another form of, the, of that, that verb. He's hallowed or he is set apart in righteousness. He's distinct in his righteousness. His righteousness is not like human righteousness, which is all in some sense relative. He is the absolute standard of righteousness. So we, before we can even talk about what is right or wrong or just or unjust, we have to know God's character. You know, that's part of the problem I had with people who run around saying, well, what would Jesus do? And somebody posted something to me the other day that was some uh, liberal false teacher. He's a false teacher because he's got a super mega church. And he's a false teacher because he comes on and he says, well, what would Jesus do in terms of this race problem? And everything that he says is pure subjectivity and garbage because he doesn't know Jesus. He's like Philip. He may have a superficial awareness of who Jesus is. He might even be saved, but he doesn't know diddly squat about who Jesus is. And that's the problem with this whole what would Jesus do business. Ultimately, that's a good statement. We ought to think in terms of occupation with Christ, but most people don't have a thimble full of knowledge about who Jesus is or what Jesus believed or what is happening in God's plan today, and so they're just manufacturing an idolatrous image of the Jesus they want to be some sort of friendly uh, uh, companion who approves of everything they do because he's so permissive and loving that it just gets all messed up. Uh, You have to understand who God is. You have to understand the righteousness of God by going through the Old Testament and understanding. That's why why it's so important for God. You know, people say, well, the Old Testament got this mean, nasty God, and he's just all about righteousness and justice and not about love. Well, first, that's that's a mischaracterization. There's a lot about the love of God there, but the love of God has to be consistent with his righteousness and his justice. When we get into Isaiah 6-3, when Isaiah is confronted in the presence of God and the seraphim are surrounding the throne of God, uh, praising God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What's Isaiah's response? He screams out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. That brings a moral issue, a purity issue into the presence of God. He's a sinner, and there has to be cleansing because God is holy in his righteousness. He's unique in his righteousness. And so we start with that as our definition. And this is what uh, what happens in uh, the thinking of the Puritans, the thinking of the founding fathers, the thinking of the, most of the, of the Protestants in the founding era. And as uh, we were talking about Lutz a little while ago, he has a list of the scriptures that were frequently cited by all of these, uh, by the early founders, and they would go to these again and again and again. He says he, they were quoted promiscuously. You know, it's not just once or twice that these passages are cited in their writings. They knew the Bible, they knew the references, and they put the references in and quote them again and again. And they quote a lot from Deuteronomy. 
and a, a quote especially from the end of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 32.4, Moses says about God, he is the rock, absolute stability. There is no stability in anything else. So if you're metaphysic, if your view of ultimate reality isn't built on the rock, it's built on shifting sand. He is the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are justice. His character defines what justice is. Justice, as we'll see in a minute, has to do with conforming to a standard. The standard isn't some external idea. The standard is knowing God and knowing who he is and his character. That's the standard. For all his ways are Thetic, or Tzedekah, but it's the same form. We'll look at that in just a second. A God of truth and without injustice. Okay, so you have righteous there and justice. Now here there are probably two separate words. I didn't look it up. Sometimes uh, justice is mishpat, which has to do with the application of righteousness. Other times uh, the same word in the Hebrew as well as in the Greek in the New Testament is used for both righteousness and justice because righteousness is the standard of God's character and justice is the application of the standard of God's character. In Psalm 11.3 that we quoted at the minute, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The righteous are those who are tzedakah, now, the A-H ending just has to do with making it an adjective, but it means to conform to an ethical or moral standard. Now, we can't do that on our own because we're born sinners and we're spiritually dead. And we have to be made alive first, and we have to be given the righteousness of God in the Old Testament or the righteousness of Christ in the New Testament. And Norman Snaith, who was not a conservative theologian, but he wrote an outstanding book, on word studies called distinctive, excuse me, distinctive ideas of the Old Testament, and he says this root for tzedek basically connotes conformity to an ethical or moral standard. The very word itself means there is an external absolute standard in existence. There's no such thing as relativism. There's no such thing as everybody can do what's right in their own eyes. Just go out there and do whatever makes you feel good. The word itself means to conform to an ethical or moral standard. The original significance of the root tzedek meant to be straight. It stands for a norm. So whenever we see the word righteous, it has to do those who conform to a norm. Most of the time in the Old Testament, the word righteous isn't referring to a group of people because of their experiential righteousness. It is referring to people who have been declared righteous by faith. Uh, Genesis fifteen six, what did God say about Abraham? The comment about Abraham is that Abraham had already believed in God by that point, Genesis 15, and God had at this time in the past had accounted it to him as righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. Paul quotes that verse in Romans chapter 4 to talk about our justification. So it's imputed right. All through the all through the Psalms, you have this contrast between the righteous and the wicked, and it's talking about the righteous. It's talking about those who have received the imputation of righteousness. Now, how do I know that? Because after this, is, this word is applied to Abraham in Genesis fifteen six, uh, do you know who the next person is who is called righteous in Genesis? 
It has a three-letter name. No, it's not Job. Lot, righteous Lot living in Sodom. Now, he's just an upstanding paragon of virtue and morality, isn't he? No. You, wouldn't, you and I would not call him righteous, but he's called righteous in Genesis, and he's called righteous in Second Peter. He's righteous because he's believed in God, and it's been, it's been accounted to him as righteous. So he's righteous. And when Abraham is asking these questions, well, God, would you destroy Sodom if there were 50 righteous people there? What he's saying is, would you destroy Sodom if there were 50 believers there? And God says no. And what we're learning there is the uh, blessing by association and ultimately works his way down. And you know the rest of the story that Lot has to be taken out because God's going to wipe everybody out. So he removes the righteous from there. So the righteous are those who are believers. So if the foundations are destroyed, believers are in a world of hurt. Deuteronomy one thirteen. this is another passage often quoted. Uh, Deuteronomy one thirteen through 17 is cited by, by Lutz, and this is the selection of leaders. Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I will make them heads over you. So you have to have standards for selection of leadership. And and you answered me, Moses is talking to the Israelites, you answered me and said, the thing which you have told us to do is good. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you. Were they really that wise and knowledgeable? Huh? What generation is this? This is the generation that moaned and whined all the way through the wilderness. This is a generation that were constantly griping about Moses' leadership, and many of them rebelled against Moses' leadership and Aaron and, and uh, Miriam at different times. So they weren't all that spiritually mature. So they had to take the best they had. Sometimes that's what we do in the voting booth. So I take the heads of your tribes, rise knowledgeable men, and made them heads over you, leaders of thousands, hundreds, etc., Verse 16, then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, here are the cases between your brethren and judge according to an absolute standard of righteousness. Paraphrasing. So you have to have judges who understand the law and can make a righteous decision. Verse 17, you shall not show partiality in judgment. It doesn't matter what their economics are. It doesn't matter what their skin color is. It doesn't matter how old they are, how young they are. It doesn't matter what the external circumstances are. You have to judge according to an absolute impartial standard. You shall hear the small, that means the poor or the insignificant, as well as the great. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. Verse 18, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates. That's where the city councils met, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Sedekah mishpat. So that's according to a standard. And then it says you shall not pervert or twist justice. You shall not show partiality nor take a bribe. See, all of this is part and parcel of what shaped America. Now we have a lot of corruption. We have a lot of bribing going on in different places at higher levels of government. 
Uh, you, you go outside of the U.S. I don't know if you've traveled much. You go to some countries, and you have to uh, you have to pay a bribe. You have to give a little extra money to whoever to do whatever it is uh, you want them to do. The word that is translated "pervert" for perverting justice, it, uh, justice is a word that means to stretch something or to twist it. Then Leviticus nineteen fifteen and thirty six: You shall do no injustice in the judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor. Notice that you don't. Oh. They don't. They had a rough break in life. They don't have much money. They haven't had a chance. They're poor. You shall not benefit them any more than you'll be partial to the wealthy. That's the, when he, the next line. So you have to be impartial. And righteousness, that is according to an absolute norm or standard, you shall judge your neighbor. And then it goes on to talk about honest scales, Deuteronomy 16, 18 to 20, uh, as well, Second Samuel 23 talks about the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up. I've corrected the translation. We've gone through the messianic distortions here in the Masoretic text, so I've corrected it as I've taught it. Thus says the man raised up concerning the Messiah of the God of Jacob. And the delightful one, misspelled that, the delightful one of the songs of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. David the psalmist knows that he is speaking in the Psalms about the Messiah. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just. Justice here is defined as ruling in the fear of God. What happens when you don't have people who can rule in the fear of God? You've got trouble. You've got trouble. And uh, sadly, whatever happens is you'll hear one, about one candidate and say, oh, how can you vote for him? Look at all the terrible things that he's done. Well, he's not any better, actually, than the other person. The other person coming from a pagan worldview. So just as bad. What happened after the law? Initially, they did well in the conquest generation, and then they began to compromise with the pagans around them. And this is the challenge to believers, not to, cha- not to compromise with the worldview surrounding us, but that's exactly what we see happening in the church. That's why when I quoted this study from Barna and Arizona Christian University in the first, uh, first lesson of this series, uh, what did that point out? that today you have just a little bit less than 20% of evangelicals who affirm the authority of the Word of God, who believe in a uh, Christian worldview. 25 years ago, 40 to 45% of evangelicals believed in a Christian worldview. We've lost a lot of ground, and so we're slipping into the relativism the tyranny of the relativism of our culture. Judges point, the book of Judges points this out twice during that horrible dark period in Israel's history that lasted about 300 plus years. In those days, there was no king in Israel. The king in Israel in those days was supposed to be God. God was the, the executive over Israel. He was the king, and there was a theocracy. 
but they had rejected God. See, that's what happens when you reject the system of absolutes that are the basis for law and order in your nation and stability, and everyone starts doing what's right in their own eyes. That's moral relativism. And then you don't have a standard because you have one person on one side who says this is right and that's wrong, and the other person says, no, you've got it backwards. This thing that you think is wrong is right, and what you say is right is wrong. And so you have these silly things that go on, and you have the, I've been against it from the beginning. It's a very bad uh, legal precedent to call something hate speech, uh, or a crime has to do with, it's a hate crime. Well, if you murder somebody intentionally, I would say you hated them. It's just, it's satisfying a politically correct uh, idea that is just the tyranny of relativism. And so you had, in the period of the judges, everything was deteriorating into anarchy. You see, it's just absolutely miserable. There's no military security. There's no financial security. Every 30 or 40 years, Israel gets overrun by a foreign power. It is a horrible place to live. And then God is going to change things by raising up first a prophet, And that prophet was Samuel. We studied this in the first part of Samuel, but when Samuel got old, the people rejected him, and they said, oh, you've gotten old, and your sons don't walk in your ways. Now we want a king. And what happens, we're not going to take the time to look at it tonight, what happens after that is God says, look, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me, and this is what's going to happen is that once they get a king, he's going to be a tyrant. He's going to be an autocrat. They're going to lose their liberty. They're going to lose their freedom. See, when you swing towards anarchy like we have in this country, the only thing that can bring order out of the chaos is a strong, authoritative government. And that's where we're headed. Uh, uh, We may have enough people left in this country to where that gets brought back to to, uh, balance, but one day that's not going to happen. One day, if these anarchists have their way, they're going to have to be put down with a strong military action and martial law. Oh, you're so negative. I'm a student of history. This is what's happened time and time again in history. You, You know, somebody sent me a meme not long ago that said... Some of us have learned that that we we don't learn anything from if we don't learn anything from history we're doomed to repeat it. And unfortunately those of us who have learned from history are are doomed to go through it for, with those who didn't learn anything from history. So there are a lot of us who are like that. We've learned from history. We know what not not to do, but most of the people out there haven't learned their lesson so we're going to have to suffer with them because of their ignorance and their foolishness but that's maybe god's plan for us and god's in control so we need to rest in him and nothing says that this is the end or this is over but uh we have to be aware that that there's crazy things going on it's insane out there and there are people who really want to destroy the freedom of this nation because they hate it because their minds are twisted because of sin the only hope is to get back to the bible first of all and back to the Constitution as it was written uh, secondly. 
Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to understand that the real problem is a spiritual problem. The problem is sin. The problem is a failure to deal with sin. The problem is to understand your grace in providing salvation and second, your grace in providing revelation that we can understand how to live and how to enjoy a stable life and to realize the blessings that you're ready to give us. Father, we have a history of experiencing that. Uh, Every nation goes through cycles, and we pray that we're not cycling out, but we'll just uh, recycle back, and you'll use what's going on to get the attention of a lot of people, and maybe there'll be a turning back to you in this country, something that is desperately needed. Only your grace, only the cross of Christ can change people and bring us back to where we should be. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.